Father in heaven, we thank you so much for bringing us here this evening. We thank you for the Sabbath hours, the holy sacred hours that we can spend where we can rest in you and we can worship you apart from the cares of this life. And I just pray that as we worship you this evening, that you would just speak through me in a very special way as we talk about a very special movement that we are part of, that you have raised up at this time of Earth's history. As we come to the end of this series, may everything come together, may it make sense, and help us to be inspired to be part of your last day work, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the message for this evening is entitled, Two Mighty Angels of Revelation. And as we look at what we've talked about throughout this week, last Sabbath for church, we talked about the need to wake up out of sleep. And then Sabbath evening, we talked about how the church is in a lukewarm condition and needs to become on fire for God. After laying that foundation, we went through some Bible characters, seeing that there are examples of those who have led the way before us, Abraham, and we saw how his life was an epitome of the three angels' messages. We saw um, Elijah, how his life was a life of sacrifice, how he fearlessly proclaimed the message for his time. Then we saw the sacrificing life of Jesus, of the ultimate sacrifice that he made on the cross. And then in our last message, we saw the sacrificial faith of the reformers, how they carried on the spirit of what had come before from the faith that had been given through, through God's people before the cross and after the cross. And tonight we are going to see how the Reformation meets its final conclusion. The Reformation did not end with Martin Luther. The Reformation continued and the Bible prophesied of a time when a very special movement would be raised up at the end of time to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. And we are going to see that from Scripture tonight. And before we get too much farther, I want to tell you that this movement, the Advent movement that we are going to talk about tonight, is based on our understanding of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And I want to read to you a very special quote. This is from Testimonies to Ministers, page 116. And this quote reads, Those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God will bring from the books of Daniel and Revelation truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we're talking about being living sacrifices. We see that Jesus was a living sacrifice, and Ellen White tells us that those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God, who was that living sacrifice, will bring forth truth from the books books of Daniel and Revelation that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Listen, the books of Daniel and Revelation aren't merely talking about beasts and horns. There's a lot more to it, and you're going to see that tonight. Let's continue with this quote. Continuing, they will start into action forces that cannot be repressed. Did you hear that? They will start into action forces that cannot be repressed. 
The lips of children will be open to proclaim the mysteries that have been hidden from the minds of men. When you read the statement that God's people will start into action forces that cannot be repressed, this is talking of the time prophesied in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, which we read, and it says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Revelation speaks of a time where under the power of the Holy Spirit, the entire earth will be illuminated with the glory of the character of God. And brothers and sisters, that is the work that we want to take part of. When we study the books of Daniel and Revelation, we will bring forth truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that will start into action, forces that cannot be repressed, that will climax in Revelation 18, where a mighty angel comes down from heaven, having great power, and the earth is lightened with his glory. Now, Revelation 18 is the grand conclusion of God's work here on this earth. But in order to get to Revelation 18, something else has to take place first. Now, Revelation 18 is the second of the two mighty angels that we are going to talk about tonight. Because the title of the message is Two Mighty Angels of Revelation. Revelation 18 is the culmination, it's the climax of the final work here on this earth just before Jesus comes, and that work is yet future. That second mighty angel of Revelation has yet to take place. But we are going to see that there is another mighty angel in the book of Revelation that lays the foundation for that second mighty angel to take place. And where do you think that other mighty angel is found in the book of Revelation? I would invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. And just out of curiosity, how many of you have done a Bible study on Revelation chapter 10? Okay, some of you. All right. I think you're going to be fascinated by how Revelation 10 connects to Revelation 18. Revelation chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And again, the title of our message is Two Mighty Angels of Revelation. Here we read in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. Now, Revelation chapter 10, if you look at the description of this angel, you already can tell who this angel is and what the work of this angel is designed to accomplish. The description of this angel, the fact that he is clothed with a cloud, that he's come down from heaven, that a rainbow is upon his head and that his face is like the sun and his feet as pillars of fire, that is no accident that that angel is described in such a manner. First of all, who is this angel? 
How do we prove from Scripture who this angel is? Well, the first thing we see is, is that this angel has come down from heaven. This is a heavenly messenger. Not only that, this angel is clothed with a cloud, has a rainbow upon his head, his face is like the sun, and his feet are like pillars of fire. Now, I'm going to tell you very quickly who this angel is. If you go to Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, you will see the answer to this question. Revelation 1, verses 12 through 15. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Who is that? This is Jesus. And what is Jesus described as looking like? He is clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Just as Jesus has feet that are on fire in Revelation chapter 1, his feet are as pillars of fire in in Revelation chapter 10. This mighty angel in Revelation chapter 10 is none other than Jesus. And I can show you more proof. He's clothed with a cloud, just as in Exodus 13, the pre-incarnate Christ was in the pillar of cloud that led the children of Israel. So he has feet like fire, as Revelation chapter 1. And when you come to Exodus chapter 13, specifically, when you look at verses 21 and 22, notice this. And the Lord, who? The Lord. the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So just as the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, was clothed with a cloud to lead the children of Israel, in Revelation chapter 10, he is also clothed with a cloud. And notice, a rainbow is above his head. What does a rainbow signify? God gave the rainbow when he made a covenant with Noah. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, we see a rainbow above the throne of God. So what is... The description of Jesus as the mighty angel tell us? Well, number one, he's clothed with a cloud. And just as he was in a pillar of cloud to lead a movement of people from Egypt to Canaan, Jesus is now coming down from heaven prophetically clothed with a cloud to raise up a new movement of people to lead them from spiritual Egypt to spiritual Canaan. And he's doing so with a rainbow above his head, which signifies this movement will follow the covenant, specifically the new covenant, where God writes his law into our hearts and minds. And because he is bringing a remembrance of the covenant and of his law, he is showing us that he is going to raise up a group of people who keep all the commandments, including the fourth commandment. And not only that, his face is as the sun, his feet are as pillars of fire. He is the one who leads the way. And then in verse 2, we see where the message comes that leads this movement. It's found in verse 2 of Revelation 10, where we see Jesus had in his hand a little book opened. 
And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Listen, Jesus has a book open in his hand. Now, if Jesus has opened a book, isn't that a book that you would want to read? Now, how do we know which book has been opened? Jesus is saying there is a book that is open that will point you to the fact that I am raising up a new movement based on the covenant, based on the fact that I, just as I led Israel from Egypt to Canaan, I'm leading a new movement from spiritual Egypt to spiritual Canaan. And just as I led literal Israel from Egypt to Canaan and gave them a greater understanding of my character through the sanctuary because the pillar of cloud was above the mercy seat. I am clothed with a cloud again above the sanctuary in heaven. In other words, the message that is driving this movement is Christ as the leader, clothed with a cloud above the sanctuary based on the law of God, based on a little book that has been open at this time of earth's history. Now, if you study Revelation carefully, Revelation chapter 10 is in between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. Now, we're not going to get lost in the weeds of the trumpets tonight. That's not going to happen. But let me just tell you this. Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. The seven churches end with a lukewarm church, but then the seven... The seven seals end with 144,000 coming out of God's last day church. And then after the seals, you come to the trumpets and you see that God raises up a movement that prepares the 144,000. Now, when you study the trumpets specifically, you will find that the sixth trumpet ended on August 11, 1840. How many of you knew that? Okay, one or two people. Great Controversy, page 334 confirms that the time prophecy of the sixth trumpet ended on August 11, 1840, and then Revelation 10 happens, which means that right as that prophecy was fulfilled according to the word of the Lord, Jesus comes down from heaven and says, prophecy has been fulfilled. This confirms the principles of prophetic interpretation that point to my soon coming, and I am here coming down from heaven to raise up a new movement based on a movement that will understand the sanctuary, that will understand the law of God and the covenant, and that will be raised up to go from this earth to the spiritual Canaan. And the book that was open during this time of earth's history is none other than the book of Daniel, where there was a time prophecy in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, which says, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now see, there's sanctuary language in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 10. And Jesus is announcing that book in the Old Testament that pointed you 2,300 years into the future, that time is now. It's time to open up the book of Daniel, to study those prophecies, and to understand what is going to happen at the end of the 2,300 days. So listen, if Jesus opened up the book of Daniel, don't tell me we need to stop studying it. 
now more than ever, is the time to study the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And when you study the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, you will find that those prophecies point to a movement specifically raised up by God himself. And it was so important that he sent his son Jesus, the mighty angel, to come down to this earth to announce that this movement was here on this earth to be part of the finishing of God's work here on this earth. And he had in his hand a little book open. Now, if you study the history of that era, and we talked about it a little bit last Sabbath, God used a humble farmer by the name of William Miller. And by the way, the pastor and I went to the ABC on Wednesday, and they have the book, The Midnight Cry by Francis D. Nickel. If you want a good history on the Millerite movement, it's in your ABC right here in Hamilton. And I would encourage you to get that. William Miller, he was a humble farmer. He came from a Christian family. He became a deist. And a deist is someone who believes that God created the world, but he set the world into motion, and he just stepped back and let things take their natural course. So William Miller didn't really have much regard for God. He would show up to church just for the sake of his family, but God wasn't a big part of his life. And then he he would come sometimes and he wouldn't come and one time his mother asked him William why aren't you coming to church more often and he's like oh I have to listen to the elder read a printed sermon and he can't read it very well and his mother got an idea hey if you don't like listening to the sermons we could get you to read the sermons because he he was a good reader he could study and he could read and so he agreed, okay, I'll read the sermon for church. And one Sunday, because he didn't have the light on the Sabbath, one Sunday he was reading a sermon based on Isaiah 53 and the sufferings of Christ. And William Miller, as he is up there reading, becomes convicted that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he becomes so overwhelmed by what he's reading in that sermon that he begins weeping from the pulpit and he couldn't even finish the sermon. And the congregation started weeping with him because they saw what was happening. They saw that God was reaching his heart. And you know, there's nothing better, there's nothing more special than when a sinner comes to Christ. And William Miller gained that experience. And from that time, he went to a study of the scripture and he says in his personal memoirs that as he studied the Bible, he found in Jesus a true and dear friend. You know, we know William Miller for the one who discovered the 2300-day prophecy and all these different prophecies, but that was all part of a framework that had a foundation where his foundation was that Jesus was his best and dearest friend. And the Spirit of God led him to a study of the prophecies where he came to an accurate understanding of many prophecies in Scripture. Now, William Miller studied on his own, and several years before he started preaching, he came to the understanding that the 2300-day prophecy of Daniel 8.14 would conclude about the year 1843. And I believe it was 20-something years before the time. 
And he said he just got this very happy feeling. Well, my best friend, my savior, will be returning to this earth in about 25 years. And yet, he was a farmer. He didn't consider himself a preacher. And so he didn't really go around and share this. There were a few people that knew in his family, yeah, William Miller, he's been studying, and he thinks that Jesus is going to come around 1843. That's interesting. I, I, I don't know how you could come up with that, but I guess he studied, and that's what he's found. And you know what he did in the intervening years while he didn't preach? He thought of all the different possible objections to his conclusions, and he worked through all the objections, and after he worked through all the objections, he found that his conclusions were more solid than ever, so that when he finally went out and preached, when people raised the objections, he had already worked through those. And so he didn't have any plans on becoming a preacher, becoming a minister, and finally, one day, he felt this conviction, go and tell it to the world. And he said, God, I can't do this. I'm a farmer. No one's going to listen to a farmer. How could you call me to be a preacher when I'm not even trained to do that? And he made a deal with God. Be careful when you make deals with God. Which, by the way... We should just surrender. We should be living sacrifices. But William Miller, he thought he was making a deal that he wouldn't have to keep. And he told God, God, if someone invites me to preach, I will go and start preaching. Little did he know that his nephew was already on the way from the town over inviting him to preach for the next day. He didn't know that God had already set the deal up so that William Miller thought it wouldn't happen, and God already had the answer for him. And so just a few minutes later, after he made the deal with God, his nephew knocks on the door, and he comes in and says, Uncle William, our family would like you to come to our church tomorrow and share what you've been studying about the prophecies pointing to the second coming of Jesus. And William Miller stormed out of his house, angry with God. God, how could you do this to me? I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a preacher. And he went out to the maple grove behind his house, and he wrestled with God for about half an hour. And when he came out of that grove, he had entered as a farmer, but he came out as a preacher. And from that day forward, he went around preaching from place to place, and he became one of the greatest preachers that God has ever raised up. And you know what? God needs more men more people like William Miller who would be willing to be used by God. But if we're going to be used by God, we need to study. We can't just assume that we know our message if we're not opening our Bibles. Yet William Miller, he got into the scripture and he dug and he dug and he got into deep, precious truths that pointed to the prophecies of his hour. And we are God's last day people with an even clearer understanding of our message. Now, we should be studying like William Miller did. We have no excuses. And he became a great preacher. And after that, he started going around preaching from town to town. But it was finally around the year 1840 that he met a, another preacher in the city of Boston by the name of Joshua Himes. Joshua Himes basically became his manager. And instead of having William Miller just preach at any given small church here and there, Joshua Himes got him into the big churches and the big cities. They started publishing in newspapers, the Midnight Cry and other, uh, other newspapers. And before too long... America became aware that a group of people believed that Jesus was coming around the year 1843. 
This was prophesied. Jesus came down from heaven to raise up this movement. And he used a humble farmer, William Miller, to proclaim this work. Now, when you look at what happens, of course, you see that there was a disappointment. In verse 8 of Revelation chapter 10, it says, And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. This is the book of Daniel that he's being told to take. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Here's what happened. They believed initially Jesus was going to come by the spring of 1844, by March of 1844. Jesus didn't come. That was the early disappointment. Then in August of 1844, Samuel Snow, he came to an understanding that, look, according to the prophecies, when Jesus came and died on this earth, there were the spring festivals. There's also the fall festivals. Jesus died as the Passover lamb and the spring festivals on the very day. The sanctuary to be cleansed at the end of the 2300 days, that's in the fall festivals. And the very day of the Day of Atonement in 1844 is October 22. So Samuel Snow preaches this message in front of th uh, several thousand early Advent believers in a town called Exeter, New Hampshire, and he comes in, actually. Joseph Bates, one of the Adventist pioneers, was preaching a message. It was pretty dry. People were like, we've heard this before, but it's not helping us to understand what's going on. Samuel Snow comes in. He sits on the front row next to his sister, who was seated on the front row. He tells her, I have new light. His sister stands up and says, Brother Bates, sit down. My brother has new light. Now, I'm glad that nobody's going to do that to me tonight. And Brother Bates sat down, Samuel Snow came up, he told them, based on my study, Jesus is coming on October 22. He did this on August 12. It was two months and 10 days before the day. And they really believed that Jesus was going to come. And when they got to that day and Jesus didn't come, what a disappointment. Bitter in the belly, it had been so sweet in the mouth. And listen, if I was convinced that tomorrow, I knew 100%, again, we're not time-setting, don't tell anyone I did time-setting, but let's just say for illustration's sake, if I knew 100% that Jesus, my best and dearest friend, is coming back tomorrow, and tomorrow, and well, let me back up. If I know he's coming tomorrow, today is the happiest day of my life because I can't wait to see Jesus. And when tomorrow comes and he doesn't come, that would be the most excruciating disappointment. And that's what they went through. But you know, there was more that needed to happen that they didn't understand. And that more that, is, that needs to happen is described actually in Revelation chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. When you see, well, let's start in verse 5, speaking of this angel. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which 
are therein, that there should be time no longer. This is speaking of no more prophetic time after the end of the 2,300 day prophecy in connection with God as creator, which connects us to the first angel's message and the judgment hour. There will be no more prophetic time. And then verse seven, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. What John the Revelator is being told is that when the seventh angel or the seventh trumpet begins to sound, the mystery of God will be finished in this movement that Jesus himself has raised up. Now, there's two questions then. When did the seventh trumpet begin to sound? And what's the mystery of God? Are those good questions to ask? Because this is a movement that God has raised up based on the open book of Daniel. It's based on the sanctuary message, the covenant. It's based on the 2300 days being unsealed. And we're told that when this happens, the seventh trumpet will sound and the mystery of God will be finished. Well, the question is, when did the seventh trumpet begin to sound? And the answer to that question is found in Revelation 11, verses 15 and 19. Revelation 11, verse 15, notice what it says. And the seventh angel sounded. Now let's skip down to verse 19. So the seventh angel or the seventh trumpet sounds. You see that? What happens when the seventh trumpet sounds? Notice verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. Where is that in the sanctuary? That's the most holy place. And what points us to the most holy place, prophetically speaking? The 2300-day prophecy. And we just saw that that's October 22, 1844. So Revelation 10, 7 says, When the seventh trumpet begins to sound on October 22, 1844, from that point forward, a very special work is going to take place. And it is this. The mystery of God should be finished. Now, what's the mystery of God? I heard someone give the answer. Let's look at the Bible. Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We will see that there is a very special work that needs to be finished in the Advent movement. Actually, let's start Colossians 1.25. Where have I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God? Even the mystery, which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. So he, he's saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you what this mystery is that's been hidden. What's this mystery? Verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you see that? What's the mystery of God? The mystery of God is Christ in you. Notice it's not Christ outside of you. It's not just Christ covering you. It's all of that, yes, but it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, which connects us to Galatians 2, verse 20, which says, I am crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but who lives in me? Christ. That's the mystery of God. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of Jesus. That's the third angel's message. Notice this, the mystery of God is Christ in you, meaning that you have been crucified with Christ. You have been a living sacrifice with Christ. Therefore, Christ lives in you, and he exercises his faith through you, and you then become a demonstration of the third angel's message. And here's the thing, when Christ lives in you, that helps Christ to accomplish the work of cleansing sin out of our lives. So when the seventh trumpet began to sound on October 22, 1844, that's synonymous with the judgment beginning in heaven. That's synonymous with the sanctuary beginning to be cleansed in the most holy place. And it's synonymous with Christ beginning a work in the hearts and lives of the believers where he cleanses us from sin as we become crucified with him. That is what Jesus came down from heaven to raise up. Let's put it another way. The second Advent movement is a heaven-initiated, Christ-initiated, ordained movement of God raised up at the end of the world to finish the great controversy where God raises up a group of people through whom he can have his son, Jesus Christ, dwelling in our hearts by faith as we are crucified with him. And as we are crucified with Christ, we become a demonstration of his character to the world, and he can cleanse the sanctuary in heaven. In fact, Ellen White says there must be a cleansing of the sanctuary and the souls and then in the hearts of the lives of God's people here upon this earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. He won't have a cleansed sanctuary if he has an uncleansed people. He raised up the second Advent movement. It's the final movement of the Reformation that brings people back to the Bible and the Bible alone, which points us to having an experience of living the life of Jesus Christ here on this earth. And that is the third angel's message. And that's why the Millerites, they didn't completely understand. They got the first and the second angel's message, but they didn't get the third angel's message. And that's why the angel says in Revelation 10, verse 11, thou must prophesy again before nations, kings, tongues, and peoples. That means you need to preach this message again, not only with the first and the second angel's message, but with the third angel's message as a complete unit. And that's what God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist church to accomplish. We are here to accomplish the work of the third angel. Now, this message, as you can see, is entitled, Two Mighty Angels of Revelation. Now, you realize that one day, that second mighty angel that we talked about at the beginning of the message will come down from heaven. I am looking forward to that day 
when Revelation 18.1 becomes a reality and we see an angel come down from heaven having great power. The earth is lightened with its glory. The whole world sees the character of God. And as the character of God fills the lives of the believers, they cry mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon, the great, is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils. Listen, when we become filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we are going to call sin by its right name, and the rest of the world is not going to be happy to be identified as being aligned with Satan. But when will Revelation 18 become a reality? Let me read to you a very interesting quote from Review and Herald, April 21, 1891. And it actually ties all of this together. The latter rain is to fall upon the people of God. A mighty angel is to come down from heaven, and the whole earth is to be lighted with his glory. So Ellen White identifies the angel of Revelation 18 as a mighty angel. And by the way, the, the mighty angel of Revelation 18 is a repetition of the three angels, but with greater power. So a mighty angel is to come down from heaven, and the whole earth is to be lighted with his glory. Now notice that she asks some questions. Are we ready to take part in the glorious work of the third angel? Are our vessels ready to receive the heavenly dew? Have we defilement and sin in the heart? Now notice this. So she's asked the questions, and now notice what she says. If so, let us cleanse the soul temple. Notice, that's the cleansing of the sanctuary. Let us cleanse the soul temple and prepare for the showers of the latter rain. In other words, when the sanctuary is cleansed, we'll receive the latter rain. Continuing, the refreshing from the presence of the Lord will never come to hearts filled with impurity. Now notice this. May God help us to die to self that Christ, the hope of glory, may be formed within. Now notice what we've just seen here. When Christ, the hope of glory, is formed within, that means the mystery of God is finished. That means the sanctuary in heaven is cleansed. And that means our hearts are ready to receive the outpouring of the latter rain so that the second angel of Revelation 18 can come down from heaven having great power. So here's the thing. The first mighty angel, that mighty angel was Jesus himself who raised up a movement of people, the second advent movement, through whom the mystery of God could be finished. But when the second angel, the second mighty angel of Revelation 18 comes down, this angel is going to be so much more powerful because rather than just being Jesus by himself, it's going to be an entire world of people who are just like Jesus who can do the work of Jesus through his power, through his grace, who have the faith of Jesus, who are living the third angel's message. And when the world sees them, they see a demonstration of the character of Jesus on this earth. And when that time comes, great power will be seen here on this earth. That's why Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. 
The issue is this. Jesus raised up our movement to have a cleansed people who demonstrate his character. In order for us to be cleansed of sin, in order for Christ to be formed within the hope of glory, Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. When we become crucified with Christ, Christ comes in and sin goes out. And as Christ comes in and sin goes out, our lives become cleansed of sin and we become demonstrations of the character of God to the world. And I'm telling you this, God is still waiting for that day to come. We have been waiting since 1844 for the mystery of God to be finished. And God is doing everything he can to wake his people up, to help us to understand that by his grace, we need to surrender our lives to Jesus every day. And as we see his matchless charms on the cross, as he's made salvation available to each one of us, we say, Jesus, we love you and we give our lives to you. And when God has a group of people who will respond to such a Savior, and who will allow him to come into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives. It will not be long when the angel of Revelation 18 will come down from heaven. And that's solely and completely God's work. We simply make the choice to let that happen. And what we're going to see tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon are more specific elements to the message that prepares. In fact, we're going to see that God sent a message in 1888 to prepare his people to have this experience. And then tomorrow afternoon, we're going to see the final elements that bring it all together. But you know what? I truly believe that very soon, the mystery of God is going to be finished. I truly believe that very soon the sanctuary in heaven is going to be cleansed. I truly believe that very soon the latter rain is going to be poured out upon God's last day people and Jesus is going to stand up in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and he is going to say, it is finished. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. And I pray with all of my heart that I and that you will be among those that will be the righteous and the holy. And that we will be among those who are part of the work where the earth is lightened with the glory of God's character. If you want to be part of that special work, and if you want to stand for a special prayer of commitment and consecration, asking for God to cleanse us of whatever sins may remain in our lives, asking for him to empower us with the latter rain so that we can go forward to do this work, I would invite you to stand with me at this time. Father in heaven, We thank you that you had a final movement to the Reformation, a movement that Jesus himself came down from heaven to raise up, a movement that the mystery of God, which is Christ in us, that that movement would have Christ in us finished, 
that our lives would be cleansed of sin, that we would receive the power of the latter reign of the Holy Spirit, that we would lighten the earth with your glory through your power and through your grace. Lord, we ask for forgiveness of our sins where we have fallen short of your glory. We thank you that you are a merciful and forgiving God, that you will cleanse us and forgive us of all of our sins. And Lord, I just pray that from this week of meetings that we have been experiencing, that you would help us to see just the work that you have given us to do here on this earth in order for us to be prepared for you to come and for us to do a work to prepare a people for your coming. We thank you for the message in Daniel and Revelation that identifies our movement, and we ask for forgiveness for being in such a lukewarm Laodicean state. Help us to wake up, to see your matchless charms, to surrender our lives to you, and to go forward, allowing Christ to be formed within our hearts. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we just have two more messages. Tomorrow morning, 1888, the 1888 message and the cross of Christ, and then tomorrow afternoon, the last generation and the cross of Christ. You'll want to be here for those last two messages. It's going to put everything together to see what the final pieces are for God to prepare people. So thank you and have a good night. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.